This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What exactly is genetic genealogy? There's a lot more to it than the Ancestry.com DNA test that your Aunt Sally gave you last Christmas. As we've seen in the first two episodes of this podcast, it can be a revolutionary tool in the effort to find the identities of those who would otherwise have faded namelessly into obscurity. This episode is going to explore the history, science, and practice of genetic genealogy and how investigators use it to solve decades-old unidentified human remains cold cases. First, a content warning. Part of this episode deals with sexual assault. This is such a powerful tool to resolve these cases. I needed to blaze my own trail in order to get here. Why not, you know, submit the sample for some type of comparison? I'm Regan Mertz. And I'm Dave Killen. This is The Unidentifieds, a podcast from The Oregonian and Oregon Live. Last time, we looked back at the story of little Stevie, a two-year-old boy whose body had languished as the oldest case of unidentified remains in Oregon until genetic genealogy gave him his name back in 2021. In this episode, we're going to look at the process of genetic genealogy itself and how advances in DNA technology have made it an enormously powerful tool for investigators. You all probably know someone in your family, extended family, or friend network. Maybe you are that person who's just fascinated with tracing their lineage. And as of the last couple decades, part of that process can involve submitting your own DNA to one of several genealogy companies. What this means in practical terms is you spit into a tube and send them your saliva. Presto. You can now find out if you're related to Alexander Hamilton, Celine Dion, Barack Obama, or Audrey Hepburn. Genetic genealogy combines DNA testing with more traditional methods of genealogy, like searching historical records like birth and death certificates, marriage licenses, newspaper archives, and obituaries. Genetic genealogy has been around since the late 1980s, but it didn't become commercially available until the year 2000. That year, at-home testing became available with the launch of companies called Family Tree DNA and Oxford Ancestors. Since then, other powerhouse companies like Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and MyHeritage have taken over the market. Chief Genetic Genealogist at Parabon Nanolab, C.C. Moore, has been using genetic genealogy to reunite adoptees with their biological families for about a decade. But in recent years, she has also become involved in criminal and unidentified human remains cases. I'm one of the pioneers of autosomal genetic genealogy. So autosomal DNA was introduced for the very first time for genealogical purposes by 23andMe at the end of 2009. So prior to that, we were using Y chromosome DNA and mitochondrial DNA. Once autosomal DNA came into use, it really opened up the potential for what genetic genealogy could accomplish and what kinds of mysteries it could solve. And that's when I really jumped in with both feet and started working more than full time as a volunteer in this field, because there was no such thing as a professional genetic genealogist back then. 
it was brand new, wide open. There were no experts. And this wasn't something that traditional scientists or academia were particularly interested in or focused on. And so it allowed someone like me without a science degree or science background to really help pioneer the field. Cece is not your typical scientist. She went to the University of Southern California and majored in theater. After graduating, she worked in commercials and professional theater and was a genetic genealogy hobbyist, even creating a popular blog about the topic. Over the last decade, she got really good at it. So good that she's consulted for DNA testing companies, genealogists, adoptees, law enforcement, and the press. She now heads the Genetic Genealogy Services Law Enforcement Unit at Parabon Nanolabs. In the two years since the unit launched, Parabon has solved more than 100 violent criminal cases. Cece's work has also led to the first conviction, the first conviction through jury verdict, and the first exoneration in criminal cases where the suspect was identified through genetic genealogy. Her profile is still rising. In November 2021, not long after we talked, her work was highlighted in The New Yorker. The magazine piece featured a black and white silhouette photo of Moore and her long curly hair. One cop likened her process to magic. Unlike other major scientific breakthroughs like vaccine research or cancer treatments, online genealogy was built through grassroots efforts. It was built by citizen scientists purely through volunteerism. There are a small core group of people who spent you know, tens of thousands of volunteer hours pioneering this field. And it took a while before there was any such thing as a professional genetic genealogist. I was actually the first person who called myself that. And I was invited to join the team of the PBS TV series, Finding Roots with Henry Louis Gates Jr. The show follows Harvard scholar Henry Louis Gates Jr. as he helps to spark national conversations about America's identity through humor, wisdom, and compassion. In 2013, CC became the first full-time genetic genealogist on a TV series when she joined Henry's team. She also stars in an ABC documentary series called The Genetic Genealogist. The documentary follows her around as she uses her research techniques to help law enforcement on cases. It definitely wasn't something that you could plan to be. <laughs> you know, it wasn't something you could strive to be because there was no such thing. I needed to blaze my own trail in order to get here. And one of the really important turns I made is when I changed my focus from traditional genetic genealogy to helping people of unknown parentage, adoptees, people who are donor conceived, etc. And the techniques that I developed for those cases are the ones that we're using today for investigative genetic genealogy to help law enforcement. My work has always been about providing answers to families and resolution for individuals. So whether I was working on a family mystery, trying to help somebody uh, determine whether their oral history was true, say, you know, did they have Native American ancestry or uh, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestors or what was their great grandmother's maiden name? It was always about solving questions. And so my work with people of unknown parentage you know, really focused on that in a, a very real way that could be life-changing for people, helping to resolve often lifelong identity questions. And working with John and Jane Doe's is really the exact same thing 
to me as working with people of unknown parentage. And instead of reuniting families in life, unfortunately, we're reuniting them in death. But it is, you know, equally as important to do so. Being a genetic genealogist is a brain exercise every day. It definitely keeps your brain working and sharp and on top of things. <laughs> Although I often stay up all night working on these cases because I can't put them aside. So I'm really taxing my brain and my eyes. <laughs> but they're getting a lot of exercise. <laughs> Unlike me, who's sitting on my couch with my laptop for 16 hours at a time or 24 hours at a time sometimes. It really does feel like a race against time. You know, you want to get these done as quickly as possible. And so if you feel like you're getting somewhere, it's really hard to walk away. If you feel like you're going to get that name just around the corner, another hour, another two hours, another six hours, I'm going to get there. And it's exciting on one hand, but it's also a huge responsibility. You know, I feel incredibly fortunate to be trusted with these cases. The more I learned about genetic genealogy, the more I wanted to take a DNA test of my own. It's a pretty simple process, but I thought it might still be instructive to go through it step-by-step on this podcast. I ordered a testing kit from a company called Ancestry DNA and got started as soon as it showed up in the mail. Okay, so there's quite a bit that comes in here. You basically spit in the tube, release and shake for at least five seconds put it in the collection bag, put it in the box, and then you mail it. So there is this smaller tube that comes with a like sky blue liquid. And this is a solution that will stabilize the DNA in my saliva. You will screw the solution tube onto the saliva tube, and then you shake the tube for at least five seconds. And basically this is just making sure that the sample which is the saliva, mixes with a stabilizing solution um, so that that's just how they process the sample. The tube you need to fill looks a lot bigger than it really is. It actually only needs about a fourth teaspoon of saliva. It still took me a bit longer than I thought it would. Okay, and that was enough. Now I'm going to put this blue solution on top. So you just twist the two together and then that will break the seal to the blue solution. And the, oh yeah, the blue solution just emptied into there. Um, and it just kind of sits on top of the spit, but I'm going to shake it now. I shake it for the required five seconds. It sounds kind of gross, so I'll spare you the audio. This is all shaken up now. I'm just going to put this into the bag and then you seal it. All right, so I am logging into my laptop now. AncestryDNA.com slash activate. And it just says DNA processing consents. So I'm going to give consent for the participate in research. And this will advance the study of genetics, genealogy, anthropology, and health. And I find these topics fascinating. Um, I took an anthropology class in my undergrad. So I would like to participate in the research and in this project. And the specific project it gives is the Ancestry Human Diversity Project. So I would like to be a part of that. So I'm giving consent. Okay. I'm going to submit and activate now. All that was left to do was drop the box in the mail and wait six to eight weeks for my results to come back. When the Golden State Killer was identified in 2018 using genetic genealogy, it went from kind of a novelty that was shared by your quirky relatives on Facebook to a powerful, potentially world-altering tool that could re-examine cases once Tall's to is unsolvable. 
And it's worth going a little deeper on the Golden State Killer case because it was such a breakthrough. Law enforcement finally realized that genetic genealogy could be a viable method to solve cases. The Golden State Killer terrorized California between 1976 and 1986 through a chain of murders, rapes, and burglaries. At the time, even rudimentary DNA technology was just a fantasy. But decades later, after the steady advancement of technology, evidence collected at the crime scenes could be analyzed. Police found DNA on that evidence and compared it to DNA profiles generated by genealogy companies. In 2018, after he had eluded law enforcement for decades, police finally arrested a man named Joseph James D'Angelo. After submitting that old DNA to a genealogy company, police were able to find more than a dozen people who had taken commercial DNA tests who shared great-great-great-grandparents with the Golden State Killer. From there, they constructed a family tree that also served as a list of potential suspects. Through good old-fashioned police work and the process of elimination, investigators narrowed their focus to D'Angelo. After sifting through his trash to get a DNA sample, they were able to confirm that the crime scene DNA was his. Just a week after the Golden State Killer was arrested, C.C. Moore took a job with Parabon Nano Labs to lead its genetic genealogy research team. And that really changed everything. That changed the entire landscape of the idea of using genetic genealogy for law enforcement. And so we shifted to working on a lot of suspect cases, violent criminal cases, homicides and rapes. But it's always been very close to my heart to help identify Jane and John Doe's, and Parabon feels the same way. So although we've been mostly known for identifying violent criminals, we've been quietly working on many Jane and John Doe cases across the country, and we've had a lot of success with those as well. But we're very committed to these cases and invested in working these cases as well. And our partnership with the Oregon State Medical Examiner's Office gives us a lot of opportunity to do so. And not all of these cases get announced publicly. Some of these are handled privately, but it's very fulfilling regardless to be able to help resolve them. Before the Golden State Killer case was solved, law enforcement officers relied on DNA forensics. This is the kind of DNA detective work that you are probably familiar with from TV shows and movies before the Golden State Killer case. An example would be comparing DNA left at a crime scene to a mouth swab from a suspect. You need two samples, one left at the scene and one from the suspect. If they match, it proves that they're the same person. These tests only analyze 20 different genetic markers. You don't need any more than that to be sure that two samples are identical. But genetic genealogy DNA tests, which seek to reveal much more information than a simple sample-to-sample -sample match, analyze around 700,000. These vast genetic markers can identify things like someone's eye color, hair color, skin color, and ethnicity. Another way to think of it is that forensic DNA finds what makes people different. It will quickly show if two samples don't match. Genetic genealogy finds what makes people similar, shared patterns to show that while two samples aren't from the same exact person, those two people, to some degree, share the same family tree. When someone takes a DNA test through a company like 23andMe, Ancestry, or MyHeritage, they get a report with a bunch of raw data. It's a long list of A's, T's, C's, and G's. The four nucleotides are building blocks found in DNA. Users can choose to download their raw data and upload it to GEDmatch. As a reminder, GEDmatch is a public DNA database that can compare DNA across various testing companies. 
and users can opt for their information to be shared with law enforcement for criminal investigations. But for years, law enforcement just didn't use it. You know, prior to that, it was, you know, this niche thing where we've been doing this for years. We were building this incredibly powerful tool for human identification under the radar. Nobody was really paying that much attention to what we were doing. You know, I I had a number of my cases highlighted on 2020 and other, you know, articles and coverage, but it wasn't something that was viral. You know, it wasn't a household name. And the Golden State Killer arrest changed all that. So that was really the catalyst because it made law enforcement aware. It opened their eyes to the power of this tool that we had been developing for the last decade. I was getting inquiries from very forward-thinking law enforcement before that, but it was few and far between compared to what we saw after that arrest. Cece shed light on another mystery when she helped to lead police to a suspect in the oldest cold case homicide in Gresham, Oregon, the 1980 killing of 19-year-old Barbara Mae Tucker. DNA technology, crime scene evidence, and ancestry databases helped police identify a 57-year-old man named Robert Plimpton as a suspect. Barbara was a sophomore at Mount Hood Community College. On January 15, 1980, she was walking to a night class when she was seen running into a wooded area on the west side of campus. Gresham police said that multiple people who had witnessed this while driving by recalled thinking Barbara was waving at someone or trying to get someone's attention, but no one stopped to help. Another witness said that they saw a man emerge from some shrubs and lead Barbara back toward campus. The following morning, a student found her body next to the same bushes. The medical examiner stated that Barbara was sexually assaulted and beaten to death. According to a 1980 story in The Oregonian, Barbara's partially clad body was found on a shrub-covered slope near a campus parking lot. She had several head injuries, and police said evidence at the scene suggested that she had struggled with her assailant. The instructor of the class Barbara was walking to that night told an Oregonian reporter she was a dedicated student who rarely missed class. The teacher said she was outgoing, intelligent, and had a lot of friends on campus. Even though Robert Plimpton was in prison in the 80s and 90s for unrelated crimes, DNA wasn't always taken and uploaded into national databases like it is today. That's why Plimpton wasn't immediately identified as a suspect. Barbara's case ran cold for over 40 years until Cece became involved. She received a letter from one of Barbara's family members who saw Cece on TV in 2018. It wasn't unusual for Cece to receive letters like this. She was gaining popularity through her work and appearances on TV. But she found this particular case extremely compelling. It was so devastating to me that she fought so hard and that she tried so hard to get help and nobody stopped. And as a mother, I just find that incredibly devastating. I mean, as a human being, but also as a mother, having to think about what that was like for Barbie's mother to realize that her daughter so easily could have been saved, that she fought so hard to be saved, and that she still didn't make it. Yeah. I, I just, to me, it's like everyone's worst nightmare. You know those nightmares where, you know, you're trying to scream and you can't and something horrible's happening, you're being victimized, and you just can't do anything about it? I feel like that must have been what it was like for her. Nothing so serious was writing on my DNA test. I was just curious. But even though I'm lucky enough to not need to submit my DNA to help solve a crime or identify long-lost remains, it can still help to add my information to the system. 
Genetic genealogy works through the connections that are established between many, many more people than the specific individuals who are being investigated. Every data point helps, and I was eager to be a part of that in addition to seeing what personal information my tests might reveal. So I was in the middle of a meeting not that long ago, and an email popped up, and it said that my ancestry DNA results are in, and I'm so excited. I was still on campus, but way too excited to wait until I got home. I sat down with my laptop in an empty classroom. Um, right off the bat, this is my ethnicity estimate, and it says 58% England and Northwestern Europe, 13% Sweden and Denmark, and then five other regions. And this is interesting. Um, it says that I share early Pennsylvania settlers community with 29 of my DNA matches. And what they mean by matches is those are other people who've taken an ancestry DNA test who might be related to me. So that will be interesting. I, I'm just sorry if it's quiet. I'm just so intrigued by this. It's so cool. Apparently, I have a fourth cousin living in Hawaii. There's someone in Alaska, some in Washington, California. Oh, they're all over the place, honestly. Someone close to Portland. That is my fourth cousin, apparently. So I, I, have, I can say I have family in Oregon now. Learning of my European roots, particularly the 58% of me with ties to England, made me think about one of the cases we've explored earlier in this podcast. This makes me think of a connection with Annie. Uh, she was also from England. Her mom was actually from England. And, you know, you could actually see her migration pattern, which is what I have here. Um, that I had family centuries ago from European countries that then went to America and settled down in Ohio and across the Midwest and the East. So this is a firsthand glimpse. And for a lot of people, this is a cool and exciting thing. But for cases that do work with unidentified remains, it's not really as joyful and happy as this is. No matter what your reasons, you're a family historian, you want to learn more about your ancestry and health, or you're just generally curious, Oregon State forensic anthropologist Nikki Vance urges people to consider taking a DNA test. Genetic genealogy gets easier and more accurate the more DNA databases grow. And with the option to exclude law enforcement use while still allowing use in cases of unidentified remains, it's an incredibly helpful gesture with no real downside. I try and encourage families with missing persons to consider giving their DNA to these secure databases. They're anonymous. They're secure. The DNA profile will never be used for anything but to match up to unidentified remains. But it's such a powerful tool to resolve these cases. And I just think it's education. I think a lot of families out there that might be missing loved ones that aren't quite sure what to do yet. And there's a lot of resources online, but it can be kind of overwhelming and fragmented too. Education is huge with me and the communities and talking about the hard things and having these tough conversations with families and trying to allevi alleviate their skepticism about DNA and databases. And could this truly help me find 
my missing brother. Nikki believes that genetic genealogy and DNA phenotyping are the key to the future of identification science. Both databases and both types of techniques are very, very powerful. But I see investigative genetic genealogy as becoming certainly more mainstream. And I see law enforcement probably using it more. I see the two databases, they can't work together. They don't actually don't speak the same language, so we can't combine them. But I see federal resources like the FBI probably stepping up to the plate and validating these types of DNA technologies to the point where everybody could use them. One example of law enforcement getting on board with these new tools is Josephine County Sheriff Dave Daniel, who we spoke to in episode one of this podcast about the case of Annie Lehman. He's become a big believer in using genetic genealogy to solve decades-old unidentified human remains cases in his area of Southern Oregon. Oh, I think it really, it's, that's exciting. I think it really opened eyes. I think people were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's other partners that we're, that we're, we're, we're missing and not utilizing. And why not? Why, why not, you know, submit the sample for some type of comparison? Like I said, it's new, fairly new. And uh, I think it opened up a lot of eyes. When you, when, you, when you can solve a case like this of identification from so long ago, really so easily, that it's just, it's just like, well, it's mind-blowing, really. You know, other law enforcement agencies need to know that this technology is out there. And, you know, it's sort of small county of 1,600 square miles uh, in, in a rural part of, of Oregon. And we sent, going back to the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children, this was just a suggestion that came up by my detective sergeant that was to a certain extent even dismissed by, by that organization, which is a fantastic organization, by the way. And you know, it wasn't until, until later that, that we got that done. But there was a lot of moving parts. There was you know, help from the uh, Oregon State Police and their crime lab to get this done. And obviously our agency and National Center, too. So it was really a kind of a collaborative effort. As Sheriff Daniel understands, there's no going back. Genetic genealogy is rapidly becoming a go-to tool for law enforcement. And as it gets cheaper and more mainstream over time, it's clear that many long-languishing unidentified remains cases will find their way out of the depths of evidence rooms in the years ahead. We'll be looking at another such case in our next episode. The Unidentifieds is a production of The Oregonian and Oregon Live. Regan Mertz reported remotely from Missouri. The podcast was edited by me, Dave Killen, alongside Andrew Thien, Teresa Mahoney, and Carly Imus. Thanks to McKenna Bach for the theme music. You can find more Oregonian podcasts at OregonLive.com podcasts. If you liked this project, give us a five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Thanks for listening.